Church, how are we? Morning. All right. Thanks, Michael. Uh, I do have a couple of quick, we'll call them announcements round two. Uh, first of all, pop is just is wrong. Um, I, I can say that for sure. It is soda. Or where I'm from, it's, uh, hey, you want a Coke? What kind? You know, that's, uh, that's fun, too. <clears throat> the second thing, though, uh, is that I want to, uh, let's call it, mm, implore you all to be getting excited for CTK Fam Fest. Have any, there we go. Okay. Okay. I feel, it feels manufactured. I'll take it. I don't really care. Um, many of you guys have heard about this already, but we are doing an event on uh, October 30th, the day before Halloween. Uh, it'll be a Saturday afternoon, and we are going to have all sorts of fun for your family and for your kids to come uh, hang out and play. If you don't have kids and you want to hang out and eat candy and popcorn and play games and jump on inflatables and... Uh, all that fun stuff that comes with fall. Isn't it funny? Like, we all just collectively commit to, like, these are the fall things. Well, all of those will be at CTK Fam Fest. So we're going to have a little trunk or treat outside that your kids will walk through on their way into the building. We have big inflatables that will be in this room. And then all of our games and food will be downstairs. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So, I would encourage you to come October 30th from 3 to 6 p.m. You can drop in. It's not like a come and stay the whole time kind of thing, unless your kids just seem to demand that that is the case, and then you're here for a while. So, first, you are invited. And second, I would invite you to come and volunteer for this. Obviously, there's a lot of needs that we have, uh, both in setting up and getting ready. Uh, many of you guys have already committed to uh, helping us build up our candy stash. I promise, don't be, don't be uh, worried about that candy stash. One of our pastors, uh, David Bailey, I'm volunteering him right now. He's a physician. He can be on standby for any uh, candy or food-related issues that, that happen from your kids overeating uh, all that candy. But you can drop off some candy in the red bucket by the back door, help us build up our collection for that that event. We hope that's going to be a good time, and we hope that you will be there. And if you can, uh, join us in SERPs. You can contact Kim about that. You can just email her, kim.gordon at ctkcincy.com, or go find her. She's probably downstairs uh, around the kids' area, and you can find her uh, after this service. And so wanted to give uh, that to you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 12 through 18 as we continue our series in Philippians, looking at a life built on the gospel. And I'm excited for our passage this morning. And, and as you're turning there to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, I was reminded a lot uh, of this kind of thing that we've all seen before. Um, and, and that is how groups tend to create culture around their hobbies and interests. Right? So whatever the thing is, whether it's, a, whether it's a sport, whether it's a music scene or anything like that, it tends to have an impact on the, on the people that are involved with that or are interested in it. It changes their language, changes the words that they say and how they say them. It changes how they spend their time, how they dress, who they hang out with. And the thing that came to mind above all these things, this will get a chuckle and an eye roll out of some of you, is CrossFit. Oh, yeah, there you go. I saw some eyes looking at me. When I was in college, I guess, like, I don't know when CrossFit was becoming a big thing, but I had a friend that got super into it, and it was like night and day, his whole life and personality just changed. Like, he was no longer this guy. He was like this guy who did CrossFit. Like, that was him. And I'm not hating on CrossFit or anything like that. We can do that later. But he, like, took on the whole culture. He had, like, the big, massive uh, lunchbox with all those, like, black plastic meal prep containers in it. And he would, like, eat these, like, weird, odd meals that looked really sad. And he would, like, talk about working out. He'd wear workout clothes that were, like, from CrossFit fit brands, which was uh, unnecessary. But he, like, bought new clothes so that he could go work out at this thing. And it just changed everything about who he was. 
And I thought so much about that this week as I looked at this passage because I think that Paul would say something similar about how the gospel shapes our community. You see, as the gospel takes root in each of our lives, I think there's a very real sense that it creates a community with certain characteristics that reflect that. So this morning, I want us to look at this short and punchy vision in this passage for how the gospel shapes our community. Let's read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So as I said before, I want us to see in this passage a vision for how the gospel shapes our community. You see, the gospel gives us these five characteristics. That's right. Take that, Michael. Brady, you've got big shoes to fill. Five points. Five characteristics for how the gospel shapes our community. It makes us a transformed community, a united community, a holy community, a missional community, and a joyful community. Let's begin first with this, a transformed community. Let's read verses 12 and 13 again. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, as Paul is getting into this vision for how this gospel should shape our community in various ways, he really begins on this more personal and individual level. You see, these verses show us that the gospel creates a community of people who are all individually being transformed by God through the work of his grace. So as fellow believers, what that means is that we are a sum total of many parts, many different people who all share this in common, that God is at work in and among us. So let's unpack what that means. First, there's some wordplay, I think, that's important happening in this passage. It says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We work out because it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So hear that. We are to work out because it is God who is working in us. Now, I think at first look, these ideas might seem to not really fit together. Right? It raises the question, are we working for God or is he working in us? Which is it? And the answer, I believe, is that God is doing the work and he's inviting us, calling us to participate in that work, that work that he's already doing. Here's what I mean. I think throughout Philippians and really throughout the Bible, we hear this beautiful overtone 
of God's sovereign work in the gospel. You see, it was God alone who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins when we were a rebellious people who had turned away from him. It was God alone who did the work of reconciling us and calling us to himself and giving us the faith to turn to him. And that's why we see this beautiful picture wrapped up in this really concise summary of assurance in Philippians 1.6 when Paul says that God not only began the work of grace in our life, but he's going to bring it to completion. He's sovereign over every bit of it. He is doing the work. That means that God is doing and carrying out. He's not only started, but carrying out a work of transformation in our lives. By his grace, he is shaping us every single day to look more like Jesus. If you are a Christian in the room, that is the trajectory for your life. Romans 8, 29 says that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. God is making us to look more like Christ. That is the work that he is doing in our life. And we see that in verse 13. that says that God is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, our will and our work were corrupted by sin. Romans 6 describes how because of our sinful nature, we were enslaved to evil desires. Our will was towards the things that were dishonoring to God, and because of our enslavement to sin, we were bound to work for that will and unable to be free from our sin. But verse 13 shows us that God is doing a work of renewal in us. He has not only freed us from the bondage of sin, Galatians 5.1 says, but he is doing the work of teaching us and giving us power to turn from our sin and turn towards him. All of this is the work of God in the gospel. So naturally, that raises the question, well, then what do I do? Right? What's, what's left to be done? If this is true, that God in all of these ways is carrying out a work of grace in our life, what more is left to be done? What does it mean to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? In this passage, we can define the Greek verb that shows up here as work out in this way. To continually work, to bring to completion or fruition. Now in verse 12, here's what that means for us practically. Paul calls this a work of obedience. He uses this language of obey. In other words, what this means is that as God is working in us, our task is to become obedient to that. Our call as Christians is to strive to become obedient, not do the work ourselves, but strive to become obedient to the work of transformation that God is already doing in our lives. So every morning, uh, I, I sit down on my couch, and often my, my son, although he didn't today, the one morning that I wasn't there earlier, uh, he, he wakes up, is just about, it doesn't matter, he's the, whoever's the first one to wake up in the house, he's the next one, and uh, he is 13 months old, and, and of course, like, he, he hears us walking down the stairs, and he's ready to be awake, and I'll sit down in the morning on my couch and read my Bible, and I have like a journal, and then also um, just like a, a planner that I write down some things that are coming up in my day, basically, I'm just kind of like spending some time together by myself drinking a cup of coffee, and often, he'll climb up on the couch and crawl over in my lap, and he is infatuated with pens, like, loves pens. And so when he sees me writing, it's like he can hear the click from across the house, and you'll hear him, like, slamming his feet in there to the, to the living room. He climbs up in the couch, and he sits on my lap, and he doesn't want to steal it from me. 
but he just like holds his hand around it. And as I write, it's like I'm writing with the weight of his hand, you know, behind it. But he just holds the pen. And as I'm, I'm doing the work, he just follows with me and is in step with me, writing out the words that I'm writing. Now, it's what I'm writing. He doesn't know how to write. And when I stop, it's over. I'm the one that's doing the work, but he's participating in that work. Church, I think that much in the same way, our working out our salvation is a work of participating in the work that God is doing in us. It's recognizing that God, by his grace, wants to shape and transform us, and it's aligning ourselves with that work, getting in step with that in our lives. So I'd ask you just simply to consider this morning, are you aligning yourself with the work of grace that God is doing in your life? And where aren't you? Where are you not in step? Where has your hand left the pen? Where are you no longer seeking after and walking after God's guidance? Where are you disobedient to God? Because the reality is if God is doing this work in our life and he is sure to do it, it's going to happen. So we take heart in that. But what that also means is that it's going to happen and that means that we are either becoming more and more obedient to that work or we're getting in the way of it. So where are you getting in the way of that this morning? The second truth is this, the gospel makes us a united community. Verse 14 says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, if we're honest, at first read, that seems like a pretty odd interjection, right? So here Paul is like making this case and building out this this picture of God is at work in us and we are to work along with him. And all of a sudden, we see this strange change of tone and direction where he says, but do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, quit your bickering. Honestly, it sounds a little bit more like the conversation that you had with your kids on the way here than it does seem to fit with this passage here. So what exactly is Paul trying to tell us? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I think there's a lot to unpack here, but I think the key for this for this truth and for the ones that follow can be found in verse 15. It says that God has intended his people to shine as lights in the world. Here's what that means just simply. We'll pick up on this idea later. It means to be a witness for the gospel. But it's important to understand now that Paul is warning the Philippians that their arguing with one another has the potential not only of making them unhappy, but getting in the way of their calling to shine as lights in the world. One commentator, Gordon Fee, says it this way, that the Philippians' continual arguing with one another uh, has the way of getting in the way so much that Paul just, just speaks to them boldly like a father and tells them to get their corporate act together. Get it together because there is so much at stake if we are constantly distracting with distracted with inward fighting. And church, if I can just speak as one of your pastors for a moment this morning, I hope that we see what's at stake for us if all we ever do is grumble and dispute. I hope that we see what's at stake if all we ever do is grumble and dispute. I'm aware that there are many things in the world, there are many things in the global Big C Church, and many things right here at Christ the King Church that have the potential 
an opportunity to divide us and leave us to grumbling and disputing. There are potential disagreements, distrust, and disunity that come at a real cost of what God intends to do in and through us in the world. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. In the life of any church, there are, there are right and good disagreements and difficult things that are worth the pain it takes to work through them. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we set aside or look aside or look beyond things that, that God actually wants us to deal with. But I would ask you to consider this. If your involvement in the church overall is characterized by grumbling and disputing, what is the heart beneath that? It's a fair question to ask. If your involvement in the church could be summarized by grumbling and disputing, what is the heart beneath that? Christ the King. Satan would love to divide us. And if he can't divide us, I'm sure he's content to distract us. He, if he can't divide us, divide us, I'm sure he's intent, content to distract us. We have a calling, though, church, that we cannot neglect. God has given us this incredible mission to be a witness, to shine as lights in the world that desperately needs the gospel. And for these reasons, we have to be. It's not an option. It's not something that would be nice to have and, and we can do without it. We have to be a united community who puts the first things first and who is characterized by a Christ-like humility and love towards one another. And if you're hearing me this morning, I would just ask you to consider this simply. If Paul wrote this same letter with these same words to Christ the King Church in 2021, would he have you in mind? Would he have you in mind? Wherever that lands with you, I, I just want you to hear this and take me seriously. Unity isn't a feature of healthy churches. It's a discipline of healthy churches. Unity isn't a feature of healthy churches. It's a discipline of healthy churches. Unity is a work. We are sinful people. We are broken people. We are often wrong, not only in our own assertions and in our own actions, but presume the same in others. We have so much potential for division and disunity and discord that distracts us from the sake of the mission. So I would ask you this morning, are you taking the work of unity with your brothers and sisters seriously here at Christ the King Church? I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe that lands well with you and you say, hey, listen, I look like a grumbling dispute. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it's just something that you place that in your mind and say, okay, I'll, I'll be watchful for that when it comes because it will come. But maybe some conversations need to happen this morning and this week. Maybe some, there's some things to work through with people here. I would encourage you, not only in the spirit of Christ-like love and affection and humility towards one another, but for the sake of our mission, let's pursue unity. Let's be disciplined to this work. The third truth of this is, verses 15, we see that the gospel makes us a holy community. I'll read verses 15 and 16. It says, That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, 
holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. And then in these verses we see that holiness ought to characterize Christian community. Paul says we are to be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish in the world. And see this, make this connection. That our calling to be a light to the world, our calling to be a witness to the world, is and can't not be a call to personal holiness. Our calling to be a light to the world is a calling to personal holiness. Being a light to the world doesn't just mean that we share the gospel with the people around us. It doesn't just mean that we love our neighbors. It doesn't just mean that we do all of these things. We, we do those things, and those things are important, and we emphasize them. But just as true as those are to our calling to shine as lights in the world, we are likewise called to proclaim God's holiness with the example of our lives. Therefore, it's important, church, that we see that our calling to honor God, to shine as lights in the world, is one that will create separation. It's one that will create separation. It says that our call to pursue these things, to be holy, innocent, blameless, children in the world, happens in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And what that means is that if you want to live your life to honor God in your work and in your life and all the places that you are in this world, it won't always be easy. That's why we need spiritual fortitude. That's why we need perseverance. Verse 16 tells us to hold fast to the word of life. Church, we must be prepared for the reality that any true and faithful witness to God in the world will at times feel costly. But that is our calling. We are to proclaim the excellency of God with the example of our lives. And what that means is that our goal isn't acceptance by the world, but faithfulness to God. And if our measure is acceptance by the world and not faithful to God, we will be led astray in all ways. Church, this is so important, and I want you to hear this, that it is so possible to build a palatable witness in the world that isn't a witness to the God of the Bible. It would be so easy for us to do that, but our calling is to be faithful to God, that through us a darkened world might behold the power and glory of God. That is a big and massive calling, and one that we need to take seriously. But church, I want you to hear this also. This doesn't mean that we can just do whatever we want, that we can just become angry, mad at the world, enemies of the world, against the world, militant combatants to the world. Rather, there should be a holiness and fidelity in the content of our message that is demonstrated by the content of our character. I want you to hear that. There is a holiness and fidelity to God that should be the content of our message that is demonstrated in the content of our character. Christian truth in a world that rejects it can't be divorced from Christian character. If we neglect Christ-like character in our witness, well then we are merely claiming Christ in word and rejecting him in deed. I heard Sam Albury say it this way, if, patient, if gentleness, patience, love, and self-control are the fruits of the Spirit, 
but they aren't the fruits of your theology, then your theology must not be of the Spirit. That struck me like a knife to my heart, to be honest with you. Because I recognize that I, I value this idea of separation, and, and sometimes it's frustrating to know the way that God has called us to, but to be mocked and reviled and slandered. But church, I would encourage you with two things. Our Savior knows those things well. He experienced that as our forerunner. And what that means, if he experienced that as our forerunner, he is the example. I don't think it's any mistake that earlier in this passage, Paul is speaking about Christ's humility, his ultimate example of humility that drove him to, a, to the cross in love for a people who had rejected him. That is what it looks like to carry a Christ-like character in a world that rejects it. If we're not careful, just like we can slip into worldliness, we can develop this sort of brashness to our witness that is so fixated on being the right ones and the correct ones in the world that we miss the heart of Christ for the world. We can develop this blasé attitude, well, hey, at least I'm doing the right thing and at least I'm saying the right things. At least I'm claiming the truth of God's word and not rejecting it like the fallen world. If that's what you're content with, I have a soft warning for you. I know another group of people in the Bible who thought this way, who were so convinced of their own righteousness that they looked upon others with contempt, Luke 18, 9. And though they were correct in all of their assertions, and although they lived in a way that seemed like it honored God, Jesus did not praise them, but instead he spoke harshly to them. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 28, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, who looked clean on the outside, but were on the inside filled with dead man's bones. Getting the right answers doesn't matter. Saying that we know the right things and know the answers and are proclaiming truth doesn't matter. If that truth is separated from the reality of how that truth is forming our character, then we have not done the work that God has called us to. I say these things to you, church, because I know firsthand that many of you are in a place where you are wrestling and wondering what this call to holiness in the midst of the world looks like. And I don't want to get down into too many specifics, but I mean this only to say that as we pursue holiness, there are easily two ditches that we can fall into. We can't slip into worldliness and neglect this holy calling. That isn't a witness to the God of the Bible. But at the same time, we can't become so fixated on the threat of the world that we miss the heart of Christ for the world. This isn't holy. This is self-righteous and dishonoring to God and arrogant and haughty. But church, we have to understand these things, hold these things in contention, place a high value on God's call to holiness in our life, but still recognize this other truth that God is calling us to be a missional community. I want to focus in on this phrase from verse 15. It says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I said we would get to that a little bit more. But as I mentioned previously, this passage tells us that God has a purpose for us to be a proclamation of himself and his gospel to the world. While we are to model holiness amidst a crooked and twisted generation, we must also keep in mind that we are sent to those very people. This will be a brief discussion, but I think it's important that we highlight this calling 
and our identity as Christians because there is no faithful community that isn't a missional community. I'll leave that there. There is no faithful church that isn't a missional church. I'll take it a step further. There is no faithful Christian that doesn't see themselves as a missional Christian sent to the world. You see, the very fact that God has made us to shine like lights in the world means that there is an intentionality to God's design. There is an intentionality to God placing us as lights among the darkness of the world. Christian, if you are hearing me this morning, understand that if you are called to shine as a light in a darkened world, that means that you are God's plan A. There is no plan B. Participation in God's mission to the world isn't an optional feature for our lives. It is knit into the DNA of who God is making his people to be. And that's what the gospel does in our life because you see the gospel came first to us and it changed us and it changed our hearts. And through God's power and grace, we turned to him and turned away from our sin, but the work isn't complete. God is still continuing that work, but he's also calling you to participate in that same work that he hopes to do in the lives of other people. We can't be so content with the 99 that we forget the one. God is calling us to be missional in this world and church I know. That for many of us, it gives us a sense of just paralyzing fear. It gives us a sense of just paralyzing fear. Because the thought of having to, to go into these darkened places, shining as a light for Christ, just seems overwhelming. Knowing that we'll be rejected sometimes. Knowing that it might break relationships, harm friendships, harm family relationships. Knowing that it might put you in a weird position at work. A lot of that can be overwhelming, but church, I'd ask you to take heart in this. <clears throat> Just as God is solely responsible for the work of grace in our lives, so he will be in the lives of others. His word will not return void. If you faithfully and boldly proclaim the gospel, shine as a light in a darkened world, because we believe in a big God theology, we know that God will do what he will. And that means that God isn't asking for results. He's asking for faithfulness. God isn't asking for results. He's asking for faithfulness. This is who he's making you to be. This is plan A. This is the option. This is the identity. This is the call to Christ, is to be his witness in the world. But church, he is going to do that work. So I'd ask you the same question I've been asking you. How are you participating in this work that God is sending you to. And not only like physically, like in your life, the actions that you take, the conversations that you have, has God's love for the world gripped your heart? Has God's desire to reach the lost with the gospel transformed your outlook for your life and your world and for your family? Because there's something there. The thing that would move Christ in love so much to the cross ought to be the thing that we take to be a high priority. God has sent his son in love to the world. How is that shaping our hearts? How are we participating in that mission? How do we want to shape to participate in that mission? How is that changing our heart? Is that desire dull in your heart or is it burning? Church, we are to become obedient to this calling because this is the work that God is doing in us. The last truth is this. 
God is calling us to be a joyful community. The gospel creates a joyful community. Look with me in verses 17 through 18. It says this. Even if I am being to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. All throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians. Again, he's writing this from in prison, right? And all throughout this letter, we hear this constant idea, this constant refrain that despite his suffering, despite his sacrifice, despite his imprisonment, and despite the hardships he has faced and will continue to face in ministry, it is worth it. Paul is saying it's worth it to lay his life down because there is no greater reward than to see the gospel advance in the lives of God's people. And no matter what happens, he's able to have this attitude and he has a real unshakable joy because the gospel should produce in us an extraordinary hope that transcends our circumstances. And so Paul has this joy and he's saying, this is what needs to be true, not only in my life, but in yours too. I remember being at Disney World one time, any Disney people? I'm, a, I'm an accidental Disney adult. Like, for whatever reason, we've accidentally made it to, like, international Disney places. Never on purpose. Like, we weren't going for that. It just happened, and I feel the need to qualify that. So don't, <laughs> there's, like, a whole thing that comes with that. So just want to be clear. But I was at Disney World one time, <clears throat> and I remember hearing this dad. You know how dads are, like, really fun at Disney World or any kind of theme park or anything that's expensive that's fun? You know how dads are. Um, I hear this dad telling his kids, he said, the kids were like, this is so much fun. And he like, was like, oh, yeah. And I hear him mutter under his breath, you better be having $11,000 worth of fun. <laughs> there's a pressure, right? It's like, we paid a lot of money. Well, one, yikes, $11,000. But two, like, th- there's a real pressure. It's like, I got to enjoy this. I got to, you know, I'll, I got to sit up straight and act right and make sure I got a smile on my face. Listen, church, the gospel doesn't call us to an artificial joy like that. I'm not advocating that we begin manufacturing happiness. If you don't want to smile, don't smile. But the gospel should create in us a joyful disposition because it is built on the hope of Christ and fanned into flame when we see his gospel at work in the lives of us and one another. Because Christ the King Church, hear me, verse 13, this fact that God is at work in and among us means that we have a reason to rejoice. And we can lose sight of that so often and so quickly. That's why we need to be reminded when we see God's work among us. Seeing and recognizing his work of grace among us and within us is a real reminder that what Paul said in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. It's a reminder that that's real. And that even when we don't see it, it's true. And we remind one another of that when we say God is at work. So here's my encouragement for us all this morning. Talk about the work of God often. Talk about the work he is doing in your life often. Man, the world is, is like we're at capacity on complaining. We're at capacity on hot takes. We're at capacity, like, I, like I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm like expressing a lot of frustration in that. Like, anyway... <laughs> We've we got enough of that, and we can find that elsewhere. But you know what we can't find anywhere else? Real hope and joy that is built on the gospel and God's work in and through us. 
That's what we can't find anywhere else. Talk about it often. Just the other day, one of our pastors called me and he said that he was convicted that every time we talked, it was about something negative or hard. It was always about difficult things and difficult ministry things and always we're talking shop. And he never told me about what God was doing. And so he proceeded to, for an hour, I just gave away who it was, uh, proceeded to, for an hour, (laughs) tell me how God was at work in him. He told me about sharing the gospel. Since I already blew it open, how they built a basketball court and were sharing the gospel with their neighbors and inviting people over and how God was really at work in other people's lives and how he was seeing that in other people in our church. And I left feeling encouraged because it reminded me in a dry season of my life that God is at work and he is bringing this to completion. And the gospel didn't stop just because I wasn't seeing it. And I had joy because of that. Wouldn't it be a shame If we spent time talking about everything else and never celebrating and enjoying the goodness of God, wouldn't it be a shame? I hope that when people think of Christ the King Church, they think two things. God is at work in those people, and they are happy about it. God's at work in those people, and they are happy about it. I don't have some profound point of application for you this morning. I like non-endings. But I want you to do this. Find someone and remind them how God is at work in your life and in our church. Let's walk in the joy that God has given us. Just like everything else, this is a discipline. Let's do it. We create a culture of joy when we talk about joy. We create a people who value joy when we choose to value that with our actions. Let's do that. Let's walk in that. Do it this morning before you leave. It'll be a long conversation. You guys stick around forever anyway. But in conclusion to all this, I'd ask you to simply consider all the ways that God intends to work in your life and all the ways that the gospel should be shaping us together as a community and a church body and ask yourself where you need to align with that work. It's a big vision. And there's lots of different things as we saw this morning. But the gospel gets down deep and shapes our community to be a God-honoring, missional, joyful, and unified witness to the gospel. That means we're either becoming obedient to that work or we're getting in the way of it. So my prayer is that God would continue, and I know he will. Those are my favorite prayers to pray. But I pray that God would continue his work among us, that we be a fully formed people who glorify him and are ready to be used by him. And that that gospel really permeates us, makes an attitude and a culture that that people long to be a part of. That's the witness we need to be. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would just convict us by your word strengthen us, encourage us. You know the things that need to happen in our hearts. God, you know where we have sinned, where we have fallen away. God, you know the corners of our hearts that we don't expose. But Father, your word reminds us that you are good and you love us, that you have fully seen us, that we are accepted by you, loved by you, cherished by you. If, Father, you call us out of any way of darkness into the light. So, Father, I pray that you continue to do that work among us. And I believe that your word, but because of your word, you will. Father, call us, make us to align with that. Father, your word is clear. This gospel should change everything. This good news should shape every single part of our life, our actions, our attitudes, what we love, our affections. It should shape us completely. God, make us to be a people who are visibly to the world formed by this reality. 
Father, I pray that through that you do a mighty work in and through us. pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, church, we always respond in this way. One of the two ordinances other than baptism given to the church is to, is to take communion. And communion, God's word tells us, is uh, the Lord's Supper, maybe is another terminology used for it, uh, is, is an opportunity uh, for us to take a common meal with one another together as the church to reflect on the sacrifice of Christ, to reflect on his work of grace in our life, and to joyfully look ahead to the work he will complete. So church, this morning as we take this meal, understand that this is a family meal. This is a meal that God calls his people to take. So if you are not a Christian, we ask that you do not take this meal. Instead, our plea is that you take Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would love to talk with you about that. All of our pastors would love to talk with you about that. We'll be hanging out around, around behind in the service. Come grab me. I'd love, to, I'd love to share with you what it means to follow Christ, that these incredible realities can become your own. But church, as we take this, I'd ask you to pause and consider where in your life is out of line with the work of grace that God is doing? Where in your life is out of step with this? Repent of that. Take this meal. Remind that, that Christ's blood has cleansed you, that you are taking his body as a broken sacrifice for you. But be reminded, church, that we are called to a brilliant hope. So in just a moment, we'll begin singing. You can come up and take the elements and return back to your seats. Come through the center aisle and around the sides back to your seats. Wade is going to lead us in another song. And then after, we'll have the words of institution. So return to your seats and hold the elements, and we'll have instructions from there.